Hello and welcome to the first episode of a new podcast series we are calling Longer with Lester. We found that while we enjoy and derive so much value from the interviews that we do on the radio, sometimes we want just a little bit more, a little bit more frankness, openness, a little bit more in-depth discussion of some of the people that we talk to here on Cape Talk. And I am very privileged and very thankful that our first guest on Longer With Lester is Leon Bosch. He is a world-renowned double bassist, best known in his adoptive country of the United Kingdom. He has been celebrated the world over. But the reason why I thought I'd want him on the show and on this podcast is many people in South Africa don't know that the world's leading double bassist, the most recognized and celebrated, hails from our shores. Leon Bosch, thanks so much for joining us. I see it's a warm morning there, wherever you are in the United Kingdom. How are you doing? Leicester, I'm very well, and it's very nice to see. I mean, Tring, my hometown, which is a small town in Hertfordshire of about 12,000 people. Mm. Uh, very pleasant place to be. The sun shining this morning. I've been up since the crack of dawn. No, excellent. Look, I came across a documentary on your life and work a few weeks ago. It's part of the Wigmore Hall series, uh, the lockdown series, as you know, as the world goes through lockdown. It was a beautiful hour and 20 minutes of part storytelling, part oral history, part performance of you telling your life story. And I know it's difficult to truncate decades of memory into a 20-minute interview that we have planned for, for this morning. But how, how has your upbringing in South Africa, you know, led you to where you are today. In that series, you talk about being a political prisoner at the yeah. age of 15 years old, growing up yeah. um, in Bishop Levis, looking um, through your window and seeing the backside of Table Mountain, the, the side that most Cape Tonians get to see, very few Cape Tonians actually get to see the front of Table Mountain, which is the world image. You yeah. wake up every morning as a young boy, opening your window, and you see the backside of Table Mountain. Just where did it all start for Leon Bosch? Well, I think my parents have uh, had a very big role in my upbringing. Of course, I mean, uh, they were very enlightened. They, were both, they both started life as teachers. But my father's banned from the teaching profession because he taught people to think. So that was unacceptable to the apartheid regime. But he decided that our education should not just include the three R's, but also music, foreign language, and everything else. So he took us to the theater, he took us to concerts, and the most important thing that he taught us all was a sense of inquiry, that I never took anything for granted, but also I developed this determination that nothing was going to stop me. And also I became a fighter. I realized that we lived in circumstances which were unacceptable politically, and also in every other manner it impacted one's life. But I decided to fight, and I had a dream. I always knew that I would not be held back. When I started playing music, 
I realized that I had such a big deficit to make up versus, you know, the education that other people received in South Africa that I had to practice eight to 10 hours a day just to catch up and then to pass by. And I didn't realize how much progress I actually made until I came to the United Kingdom. I practiced nonstop for four years whilst a student at the University of Cape Town. And when I arrived in the United Kingdom and I heard my peers, I realized that I would not just overtaken them, I'd overshot by a very long way. I could do things which my fellow students couldn't do. And that I'd achieved in the relative isolation of my practice room at the University of Cape Town. But, oh dear, you just heard that terrible noise, did you? But, uh, and this was done in the relative isolation of a practice room at the University of Cape Town, studying with a permit. But I had some critical people in my life. Oh. There were some very enlightened musicians in Cape Town who did not practice the kind of racism that was oh. evasive. So I have people like my bass teacher, Zoltan Kovacs, to thank my second bass, bass teacher, Max Runger, the composer, Alan Stevenson, and a few other critical people. But it is difficult. one should not forget that actually it was a very hostile environment for young people like me in South Africa. When we think of classical music training, we often forget that for many children who grow up on the Cape Flats, that form of classical or sort of non-pop culture music is instilled very early in them. In fact, if you were to go going, if you were to be go, going around suburbs around the Cape Flats between October and February, you'd have practice halls, classrooms, houses, just brimming with the sound of horns and brass instruments as young poor black children prepare for the Tweed and Ivayar and the various carnivals during that, that, that space. So, so music and traditional or classical musical instruments, like particularly horns and, and, and winds, are very much ingrained into the Capetonian music culture. I can't disagree. A music, look, to define music, what is music? Music is the expression of human life. And what is so fantastic about South Africa is that music has never... Uh, people have not lost connection with that essence of music. When you listen to anybody play, as you say, brass music is so deeply ingrained. My father was born in Genadendal, mm. which you probably know is the beautiful little town near Virg Martins. But Genadendal had a brass band, and I have a record here in my house of that brass band playing. And when you hear the sound, you know that those players could not have grown up in any other country other than South Africa. The sound they make speaks of the history, speaks of the pain, speaks of the anguish, speaks of the ambition, speaks of the dreams. It is very personal. Mm -hmm. You must also know the wonderful recording of uh, Abdullah Ibrahim's Manenberg. Mm -hmm. When you hear the first note played in the saxophone, you just know that the saxophonist is truly South African and that the sound he makes expresses mm -hmm. the life that we all share and that we have in common and that we understand. Now, the, quest the, the, the danger with classical music and, uh, you know, the, the kind of formal part of playing string orchestras, playing symphony orchestras, there's often this perception that it should not be for people like me. That's what I was told as a youngster in South Africa. They resisted my ambition to want to become a performer. I was told it was not for me that I should just go off and become a teacher. But so the, the dangers and, and the difficulties that there has to be a pathway for these young musicians into the profession. And, of course, that's where people like me come into this, that... Playing in the Academy St. Martin in the Fields, which was the world's most famous chamber orchestra. Young musicians who I came to teach in South Africa noticed or saw that, and they saw that as a beacon and some uh, a hope and aspiration. So, And also what one tells young people is very important. You, I, when I first started returning to South Africa in 1995 to begin to teach and also to play in some of the music festivals, 
I met a lot of young people. And now, so many years later, every now and again, I get an email from somebody telling me that they've made a great success of their life. They live in America, wherever else they live, and they date that change to an interaction we might have had during a music festival. And you realize the power of words and the power of example. Human beings learn most profoundly by example. And words also have the power to set somebody on the right path or to hold them back. So I realize how important it is what I do in South Africa when I come to this. Tell me about that and, aspiration of being a 15-year-old detained in prison following protest. How do you aspire? How do you still dream? How do you still have plans, hopes, and goals when at 15 years old you've been grabbed by the police and been tossed in a, in a police in a, in a jail cell? Actually, it's very interesting because when I came out of the uh, police cell, after we had our trial, I must have been a little depressed because I didn't wish to, t to talk to anybody. So I used to leave the house early in the morning so I didn't have to talk to my parents. I came home late at night so I didn't have to talk to everybody, anybody. But I did find that just playing the cello, which I played at the time, was hugely therapeutic. I was able to express my inner anguish by playing music. And the more I realized that that allowed me uh, self-expression, the more I played. And, I, uh, and the thing that set me off on the path to international uh, participation in the music profession was that I looked outwards. I became a bass player and I realized that there was a whole repertoire for which the music did not exist in the library in Cape Town. So I began to order music from York Edition in London and from Dublin in Vienna and from various other music houses around the world. And then I realized that if I wanted to prosper, I needed to leave South Africa. Okay. I couldn't have a, a professional life in South Africa because it was off limits. And I decided that the country that I uh, would go to would be the colonial uh, uh, you know, uh, home, Britain, because I wouldn't have to learn a different language. And also I made some contacts in the music business in London. And the thing that inspired me, what I set as my standard was those recordings. I listened to them. I heard the bass player Ludwig Streicher, the bass player Gary Carr, and that was what I aspired to. And I practiced hard enough to be able to sound like they did. Mm. And actually, as I said earlier, by the time I came to the United Kingdom, I'd managed to achieve that. In four short years, just working terribly hard, I was already a world-class bass player. And you're probably the most recognizable, and most celebrated double bass player in the world. But that hasn't stopped the level of discrimination, the level of bigotry that you may have experienced here in South Africa, moving to more progressive, you know, United Kingdom. You tell a story in the in, in the Wigmore Hall series of in 1984, after being successfully auditioning, going to a party at a fellow musician's house and being attacked almost drowned yep. in a bath by someone spewing racial hatred against you. Yeah, I mean, this was a big surprise because I thought I'd escaped the South African racism and that I would be in a safe place and that nobody would have those kind of views. But so that was a shock for me. It made me realize that racism wasn't just a uniquely South African problem, that it was something that manifested uh, in Britain also. And subsequently, I've discovered that actually it's a global problem because, as you know, my career has taken me around the world. Mm. And it kind of, it's shocking, and it also circumscribes your, your behavior. It changes what you feel you can do in human society. So 
far from just being able to walk into any restaurant and be treated like every guest, you know that you're going to get slightly different treatment. They might they'll put you in the worst table in the restaurant or that, you know, you'll get a certain kind of treatment. And with colleagues in the, the music business also, it is shocking to think that there are colleagues who have these kind of views. And that I found really difficult to, to understand to begin with. It's, but of course, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody has this outlook, but there are those that do. And there are those that will try to undermine you. So every young musician has to know that when they navigate the world, there'll be those who will try to undermine their possibilities and chances in life, but in a very surreptitious and dangerous way. The most dangerous racism is not necessarily that which is expressed in vile language or in vile behavior. It is the kind of thing which is done, which is difficult to see. So for example, young person in, uh, sends a CV or goes to interview for a job. There will always be something they raise as a reason why this person might not get the job or will not get it. In competitions for young people also in music, not all members of juries listen with their ears. They listen with their eyes. And I have experience of being on juries and uh, or seeing competitions where young people who should have won don't win mm. primarily because they're the wrong color. There's a kind of resistance also to the success of people of color. Uh, there's also this suggestion that if you're successful as a person of color, you've had an easy ride. I mean, I think in South Africa, there's this kind of accusation that black empowerment has been an easy route to success for South Africans. I don't know whether you've come across this, but, I, you know, from this distance of 6,000 miles, I read the South African papers and I look at comments mm. and sometimes I'm horrified by what I see. It, it, in various sectors, whether it be sport, whether it be the Black Lives Matter movement being honored in a symbolic fashion within sport around the world, whether it be conversations, and I'm sure as you, because you follow South African news and sport and politics, um, the ongoing debate around transformation in South African sport. I'm sure it's the same conversation that happens within chamber orchestras and conservatoires around the world, that all these institutions just mirror the society that Absolutely. that that it operates, that it lives in. So as much as we want to believe that democracy for South Africa came in 1994, the civil rights movement of the 1960s was a turning point for the United States. But we're really not in a post-race global society, aren't we? No. Exactly. I mean, the, the thing to understand is that the system itself has never changed. And it means that the same problems persist. And, you know, uh, the, the thing that I realized fairly early on in life, I arrived in the United Kingdom having fought the struggle in South Africa. And I realized that actually the first thing that I thought was that I would never return to South Africa because apartheid seemed so permanent. But I also realized that it was perhaps futile to fight a national struggle in a global society and that these problems are, are pervasive. And that unless the system changes fundamentally, globally, nothing will change uh, in the prospects of every human being on the planet. Our relationship to power remains the same. So in South Africa, for example, it is easy to try to analyze South Africa from a South African perspective. But what I realized fairly early on in my career in Britain, and as you probably know, I studied politics uh, when I came here mm. also, because I wanted to know where I'd gone wrong politically. But I realized the important thing to do is to understand South Africa from a global perspective, its role in global society, and what the f function is that global society believes South Africa should fulfill mm. in the global arrangement. 
is South Africa a status quo nation or non-status quo nation? And of course, South Africa has a very difficult tightrope to walk. It tries to look to the future and new relationships with, with the new rising world, but also has a relationship with the old world, old money, the United Kingdom, the United States. And of course, the United States and the United Kingdom will be reluctant to relinquish control over South Africa and all their ex-colonies. So South Africa has this tightrope to walk. And there's always the kind of the danger of the beauty contest. Mm. Whoever will fulfill certain political requirements for major powers will be fashionable. So in South Africa at the moment, for example, there's a beauty contest about who is going to be the next political party to deliver whatever is necessary for imperial powers. But, the, to, but to return to music for a moment, what is the purpose of music in the human journey? Music predates language as a means of expression, and also it's symbolic of our journey as a human society. In South Africa, music has had a very powerful impact. And also, it is uh, if you think of the United Kingdom alone, and this is something I wanted to look into because I realized South Africa has always batted way above its station, so to speak, in classical music. It has produced many great composers and great instrumentalists. If you look at any orchestra in the world, there will be South African musicians at the front of it. I mean, I, I've just recorded a, a disc, for example, of music by South African composers, nine new pieces, and they're all absolutely fabulous. Mm. And most of the time, these composers will never have been heard of, and they don't have enough people uh, performing their music or being their advocates. So the task of the artist is very complex. There's the possibility for transforming society, transforming what people believe is possible. And I really think that South African classical music has a great role to play in transforming society. You talk about transformation. South Africa has made great strides. The complexion of orchestras has begun to change. Mm. And also participation in classical music has changed. But the, the, I think the thing that defeats it to some extent is that there's still the poverty of resources. There's not enough money to be able to do what is necessary. Take the National Youth Orchestra, for example. The National, the National Youth Orchestra should be a flagship for South Africa. It should be able to travel to all the international festivals in the world because they are good enough. I came to South Africa a couple of years ago to conduct the South African National Youth Orchestra. A wonderful bunch of musicians who should be traveling around the world and playing in this incredible way. In the same way that we celebrate our rugby team, our cricket team, and everybody who goes abroad to represent South Africa, young musicians should do that. South African orchestras should do that because they are capable of doing that. Mm. It's just that the opportunity doesn't always arise. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about uh, my relationship to South Africa now. Do you know that I haven't performed in Cape Town with the orchestra for 18 years, mm. nearly 20 years? And it is something that I should do and would like to do but somehow it never, it hasn't arisen. So the only things that happened for my participation in South Africa are those things that I construct. So for example, in May this year, I was supposed to come to South Africa with an ensemble that I put together here called the Ubuntu Ensemble. South African musicians who live in London and also other parts of Europe. We were going to have three concerts, one in the Hanadendon Drayton Festival, one at the University of Stellenbosch and one in the Cape Town Concert Club. But of course, the COVID lockdown put pay to that. So, and also I have some great allies in the music business. I used to come to the Stellenbosch International Chamber Music Festival to play and also to coach young musicians. And that was a very worthwhile thing to do. I did that for a number of years. And the number of young musicians I was able to influence and put on the right path, I mean, there are so many of them. 
And I enjoyed that time. Also, there's the cellist Peter Martens, with whom I've recorded a CD of duos for cello and bass. But Peter and I have a great relationship, and we make things happen. So, the, unfortunately, Ubuntu Ensemble tour was cancelled, but it will happen again in the future. South Africa has, does not have a chamber orchestra. It has symphony orchestras. And uh, we, I think South Africa needs to take a look at its cultural policy and to change a few things. Here in London, we now have a new ambassador who loves classical music. And it is good to have a different relationship with the embassy in, in London now than the one I had in you know the early years when it was a hostile place. So it's good to know that the change is possible and that I have a role to play in that change. Welcome back. We are speaking to Leon Boshi now, first of our Longer with Lester podcast series, a chance and opportunity to delve a little bit deeper into some of the people that we interview here on Cape Talk. We may, we often don't have enough time and with the series, we try to get a bit more in-depth, frank open and honest conversation. Today we are speaking to world-renowned double bassist Leon Bosch, South African-born, I guess making a name for himself in the United Kingdom. You've 12 albums at my last count, a a dozen or so albums uh, under under your arm. As you say, you come back regularly to South Africa. You're probably better known in your adoptive country of the United Kingdom than than South Africa. Does that stick in your craw a little bit? You know, a country that where you were born and you still have connections, families, memories. Does that stick in your craw a little bit? Well, no, I mean, not really. The country will take its own route and it will decide what it thinks of me and what my role should be. But that role is defined still by the historical imbalances of the past. Mm. What I need to do in music, what will I be remembered for in music? I'll be remembered for the things I leave behind, the people that I've touched. So the, you refer to my recordings. I've, it's now 14. I've done 14 solo CDs. And the one that's about to be released is all South African music. And for me, that is a great, greater service to music and to the future. Young musicians, young bass players in South Africa will be able to play new music written for our instrument for years to come. And every time they pick up a piece of music, my name will be on it. 
And I have to say that there's some wonderful pieces. But, you know, this question of what do I be, do I have any expectations of South Africa or their, uh, how they should treat me? No, it is really up to me. It would be nice to come to work with the Cape Town Philharmonic, with the KwaZulu-Natal Orchestra, with the Johannesburg Philharmonic, with all the other orchestras in the, in the country. And it's not for lack of trying that I haven't worked with them. I do occasionally uh, make contact with these orchestras, but nothing returns. My relationship with the world, you know, I can go to Carnegie any day of the week and play a concert. I could go to the Wigmore Hall to play a concert. I'm received everywhere with, with open arms. But I have slightly more difficulty performing in South Africa, finding concerts is, in South is, Africa. Is, is, is that because the institution of the concert series and its infrastructure is not welcoming or not receptive? Why? It, it is Why? difficult to say. I mean, I... My feeling is that nothing really has changed in the way that the interest, the structure, the superstructure mm. impacts music. It has its own idea of where it should be going. I'm, maybe they're not sure of my willingness to contribute to whatever it is they need, but I'm available always for conversation. So difficult to, to decide what is the problem, what needs to change, but be this as it may, I have made inroads into making my own contribution. So, for example, the very first thing I did to contribute to South African music was to coach the Miyagi Youth Orchestra. Music is a great investment. I think you probably know of that project run by Robert Brooks. And that orchestra has to have been to Berlin and around the world to play concerts. And I coached the young musicians from that for a number of years. And also I made myself available to the South African National Youth Orchestra to coach young musicians. I've made myself available for master classes in South Africa. And the Stellenbosch Festival is a place where I've had a long relationship. But other than those, there's been very no nothing from the professional music world in South Africa. I've had no inquiries from the major orchestras or from the major concert halls. And sometimes, despite writing, I never receive replies. So I just leave that for everybody else to decide what happens. Though your connection to South Africa is not lost, you have a home here that, that you bought. Now you're not looking at Table Mountain from a distance. You are now at the foot of Table Mountain, <laughs> you know, where you yes. have where you have your home. What's it like, you know, coming back regularly to South yeah. Africa? You have family here, of course. Um, how do you see with the with the intermittent gaps that you have do you see things change regress stay the same you know in like a year two years of absence i mean that's an interesting question the the fundamentally nothing has changed politically nothing has really changed despite the fact that we think it has the fact that people go to the ballot box every however many years it is has changed nothing. The economy remains the same. The physical manifestation of apartheid remains. And it's, for me, quite troubling that the suburbs remain the way they were in the past, that disadvantaged South Africa still lives in relative poverty in the dusty parts of the country and the beautiful suburbs remain in the hands of those who had them before. And... Uh, how will this change? There has to be economic change. What troubles me is that I, every morning when I wake up in Cape Town, I go out for coffee or whatever, I see queues of people standing by the lights, 
looking for work for the day. And the kind of work they get, you know, it's not in the formal economy, it's a day's work for cash. Mm. We still have this, it's almost like a form of slavery. So nobody that works 12 hours a day for a handful of cash is going to be able to make a fundamental difference to their lives. Mm. We need structural change in South Africa. If for, if also, you know, the question of property, the ownership of property, the ownership of land, all the fundamental questions which underlie this uh, possibility for transformation remain the same. South Africans now might be able to go to the ballot box, but they wield no power whatsoever. They cannot control their destiny. Schools remain, the education system remains as terrible as it was in the apartheid era. Most kids go to terrible schools in the townships with a lack of material resources. And however hard they work, they will be disadvantaged. Mm. There are some fantastic schools, of course, in South Africa also. Mm. But who gets to benefit from those? Mm. So I'm really uh, troubled a little bit about the future of South Africa because there is likely to be an explosion if we don't deal with the you know uh, the blockages and the political problems. But at the same time, there is that hope, just like the hope of a 15-year-old boy who was thrown in the back of a police van, spent several nights in prison before he was released, not necessarily having to go overseas to go fulfill his dream, but there is a level of hope still in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the important thing is that young people have to be shown a path. So education is not just about teaching people to read and write. It's about in, uh, sh inculcating a vision and also providing a route to fulfilling that vision. What, if we wish to have a better future, we have to have a vision of that future. If we think that the old paradigm is not working, then we have to have a vision of a new paradigm. And the way to change the future is not to attack the past, but to create a new paradigm which makes the old one irrelevant. And I have this great hope for young people. There's a wonderful book by a man called James Martin called The Meaning of the 21st Century. And it talks about the importance of young people in constructing the future. But how can they construct a future if they don't have a vision of that future? And it's up to us to create for young people a vision. Mm -hmm. Teaching is one of the most important things. So what is important for young people is what they read. If your education consists entirely from internalizing the facts that you have to regurgitate for an exam, you go nowhere. On the other hand, if you have a dream and you begin to see a better future and you have ambition, then we can change the world. And there are so many great thinkers that, have, that I've benefited from, so many great musicians that have inspired me. Just think, think of the great musicians of the, 20, of the 20th century. Think of the Rostropovichs, think of the Yehudimenians of all the great names. They inspired my generation. And my generation went away to practice as hard as possible, to work as hard as possible, to emulate that generation. And we have to be this beacon of hope for the next generation, not just musically, but in every possible way. And I think it's entirely possible. My father, for example, you know, he constructed a framework for my development. I look back now and I think, my goodness, what a progressive person he was to be able to, to, be able to provide that framework. He's allowed me the possibility for navigating the world with confidence. And that's what every young person needs. They need to realize that they have a role to play. Life is very special. And they have to fulfill their dreams and also contribute usefully to society. There's this kind of theory about the finite world and the infinite world. If one sees everything as a zero-sum game, they're winners and losers. But if one sees it as a question of participation, infinite game, then everybody has a role to play. You enter 
at the time when you arrive in the world and you exit when you pass on. But whilst you're here, you have to do something useful to contribute to human society. And this has always been my philosophy in life. Every day I get up, what is my ambition? It is to be a better human being than I was the day before, to know a little bit more, to be better at everything I do, and to contribute to the lives of others in a meaningful way. Life is not about oneself. It's about what one does to contribute to the world. And on that, I say thank you to Leon Bosch, world-renowned and recognized double bassist, South African-born, United Kingdom trained from Tring in Hertfordshire. Thanks so much for joining us on Long With List. I really appreciate this conversation. I hope that those who listen to this will appreciate it as well. Leon, thanks so much for joining us. A great pleasure, Lester. Nice to talk to you. Thank you.